Welcome to the Racially Responsible Podcast. This show is designed to guide, support, and challenge us as white people to be actively anti-racist and step up to work for a racially equitable future. I'm your host, Rory geller Mohammed, a licensed clinical social worker, therapist, and founder of the organization, You Power Change. I'm also a white woman that grew up with a sibling of color, a white mom raising multiracial kids in a multiracial family, and strive to be a role model of what it looks like to be an anti-racist white person. If this resonates with you, I hope you will join the Racially Responsible Podcast community on Facebook to continue the conversation, ask questions, and join us to support each other on next steps. To creating a racially equitable future, let's get started. Hi, I'm so excited to welcome Rebecca Ginap to our show today. Super happy to have you with us. Thank you. So glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Rory. Of course. I know it's been crazy, so thank you for making time with all of the coronavirus craziness in life. <laughs> <laughs> New times we're in. Yes. <laughs> I wanted to ask you to tell the audience a little bit about who you are, your background, and about some of the anti-racism work that you do. Yeah, so I'm a mom, a religious educator, a writer, a former community organizer through my website now, RebeccaGinap.com. A lot of what I do is teaching, especially parents of white children, about anti-racism and ways we can talk with kids about race, ways that we can take action as a family, starting at young ages with kids all the way up through, you know, they're growing up. I also do a lot of writing about how diverse and inclusive books are really beneficial to kids of all backgrounds and helping them develop, for one thing, just an accurate understanding of what the world is like, but also curbing biases, whether those are around racism, sexism, homophobia, biases against disabled people, all those kind of things. That's so awesome. Diverse books are another big part of my work. It's so important too, because I think books are such a good way to really open up conversations as well with your parents, with kids. That's awesome. Yeah, I think a lot of times, if you're not sure how to start, even a lot of parents I know who prioritize social justice and anti-racism in their adult lives aren't sure how to translate it to kids, like how to put it in terms they can understand. And I always say, like, pick up some of these books that I recommend because that'll help teach you how to talk about it and make it interesting to your kids at the same time. The other thing that I think it's always helpful for people to hear how people's journey started how you got involved in doing this work, how anti-racism became important to you, kind of like what that journey looks for you in your life. Would you be able to share that? I think really it started just as a child. I live in Memphis, Tennessee now. I grew up here and it's a majority black city. I went to public school. So Memphis is very segregated even now, but more so in the 1980s when I was growing up. And so even though outside of school, I'm used to being majority white settings in school, I was always in the racial minority. And I think that's such a valuable experience for white people to have, because at least socially, it kind of like helped me realize that not everyone does things the way that I do or looks like me. Yeah. So that was some of the seeds of it. So I'm a Methodist minister. I felt called to ministry through the path of doing social justice work. And a lot of that was around anti-poverty and worker rights issues. And so there's all kinds of racial justice issues that come along with that. I think at that point, I probably wasn't as aware as I should have been about 
the internal work of anti-racism and challenging my own biases. And I didn't really spend as much time as I probably should have looking at my own thoughts and behaviors and patterns and things within our organizations that didn't fit with anti-racism. But after my son was born, I decided to step back from that work so that I could just have more time as a mom. Community organizing tends to be pretty all-consuming. I just felt like I couldn't do that. When my son was little, like I'd say like the first three years of his life, I just was kind of disengaged from all of my social justice stuff. And then as he started to become more aware and say things, sometimes things that disturbed me, and as the political climate changed in our country, because all this happened right around the time that Trump was elected, I felt kind of this jolt of responsibility. What do I need to be doing? I already had my blog and was writing some about diverse books, but I thought I really feel like I need to be talking with other parents about social justice and kids. So I kind of started shifting my blog in that way. And then when I was asking people, like, what are the issues that you most want to focus on? Over and over again, it was race. That was really where people were struggling. I was also looking at our own family and realizing that we had developed this white bubble intentionally <laughs> over time through you know, school choices and some other things. And I thought, this isn't what I want for our family. And so that's my complicated path into all of this. Right, right. No, I appreciate hearing that. And I think that experience of you were saying, being aware of some stuff, but not necessarily realizing the internal work that we need to do and then kind of realizing that later on. Was there anything that stood out for you or when you realized I need to do some more internal work or how you went about that or what helped with that? I don't know if off the top of my head, I can like pinpoint when I started thinking about that. But one resource that really helped me and was like so challenging for me, but I'm so glad that I went through it is Layla Saad. She has this workbook called Me and White Supremacy. And at the time, it was like a free book you could download. Now she's got it in print, which is awesome. So you can get to even more people. I don't even remember where I saw it. Like someone forwarded it to me, I think, and I downloaded it. And it's basically for 28 days, she has these journal prompts about every possible aspect of white supremacy for white people to think about how has this played out in your own life, in your thinking, in your actions, and so I committed to doing it. I did not do it in 28 days. I was telling people it took me 90 days to okay. finish it. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> but it was just so revelatory for me and forced me to face how like all this stuff in society that I'm talking about shows up in my own life. It shouldn't surprise me. That's probably the most intense experience I've had. It really shifted my thinking about it. I still think it's so important for us to do all of the policy work and organizing. And I think we should be teaching our kids about that. But if we're not also doing the internal work at the same time, we're going to try to come in as white saviors or be doing damage to people of color that we're working alongside without realizing it. So I think it's so important to look at ways we can do things at the same time. Yeah, I totally agree with you, right? being able to do our internal work as well as do the external things that need to be done. I wanted to ask you, what are some personal or family challenges that have come up for you through this work, through your work throughout more recently or before for you? So my son now is seven, especially when he was like four and five. Some of the things that we worked through, which I think is really common for kids this age, is as we were kind of learning about racism, or we also spent a lot of time, we spent a lot of time talking about immigration and 
children and families being separated from each other. So a lot of his reaction around ages four and five was like, that's not going to happen to us, right, mom? Along the lines of like, oh, I'm glad we're white because we don't have to worry about these things. I just tried to, because I'd heard from people that this was a typical response for a lot of white children that age, was I would just say, well, yeah, you're safe, but we want everyone to be safe. And it makes me really sad, so sad to think about kids who can't be with their parents or families who can't be safe or kids and families who worry about being pulled over by the police. And so that's why we need to do our part to make things fair for everyone. And now that he's seven, that's not really something that he says anymore. That's one thing that I can think of. Probably for me, the biggest challenge, which I really had to work up to looking at this, it was not the first. I think if people are like new to anti-racism, this isn't necessarily the very first thing to address because it's big, but he had attended private Montessori school. Our family's really committed to Montessori. My mom's a Montessori teacher from the ages of three to six. And it was this wonderful little school in every way, except that it was like 85, 90% white in our majority black city. I just wrestled with that. Every once in a while, I would try to talk to other people at the school about it. And it just didn't seem to... I didn't really do a good job of trying to initiate things. And then other people, I think, were feeling uncomfortable about it. So anyway, I decided to visit this charter Montessori school that I knew some of attending there. And I had to admit to myself that it's a majority Black school in a working class neighborhood. And I had to admit to myself that one of the reasons I hadn't visited is I had these stereotypes, racist stereotypes about my child is pretty sensitive and in a lot of ways, not like your typical aggressive boy. <laughs> like He's not really wild in the way that a lot of boys that age are. And so I had all these stereotypes about what it might be like for him. And especially as a boy and stereotypes about black boys and how he might be treated. And so I had not visited there. And then when we went, like this is so similar in a lot of ways to his other school. I think he would really be happy here. And so he started going to school there this year. But the first few weeks, he was really nervous. And it was definitely... Some of it was just nervous about being in a new school, but some of it he named as... You know, are there going to be other white kids there? The very first week of school, I think maybe even the very first day, some kid, like my kid also doesn't really like to be touched. And this child is like touching him and pretending, I think he was saying, I'm a spider and like touching him on the shoulder. And the child is black. And so my son got in his head, okay, this is going to happen to me a lot because there's a lot of black kids in my class. We had to talk through that. You know, I just kept encouraging him and telling him about friendships I had had in elementary school. Some of my friends were white and some were black. We got through it. But that first few weeks, what I felt was like, oh my goodness, I should have done this like two or three years ago. Maybe I've waited too long, which one of the things I'm learning about parenting is it's better to do stuff earlier than late, but it's never too late to make a change. He made the transition. I made the transition. He's doing great. Yeah, I think that's probably been our biggest challenge so far was that school transition. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And I appreciate you sharing that because I know school is always like a big topic for families, right? Of course. And the other thing too, is kind of you were saying you had recognized like you were in this white bubble to an extent at one point. And so seeing this is ways, how do we push against that for those of us who maybe recognize that that is something that we're in and want to intentionally change that for ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, it looks different depending on where you live and everything. A friend of mine was saying that She's Black, but she works with a lot of white people on anti-racism. And she was saying a white friend of hers, what she's decided to do is 
she knows that encouraging her children to have cross-racial friendships, like it has to come also from them seeing her cross-racial friendships. Her exercise classes, she signed up for like Zumba classes. Mostly the other people in the class are Black and the instructor's Black. Her sports teams, they picked multiracial teams. I don't know like what their school situation is, but in their outside of school things, she's made really deliberate decisions that make it more likely that they're going to be able to develop these relationships and friendships for herself and for her kids. And just kind of out of curiosity, did you stay connected at all with the other school? Are there still like conversations or I'm thinking like even for your child to kind of go back and talk to their kids, like, you know, variance wise or things like that? Yeah, it's interesting because it's a small community and I have friends there because it's a school with like 50 students. We do still go back sometimes there. It tends to be a school where kids come out to the playground like after school gets out and they're happy to have whoever out there. So we do still go back sometimes. Now I think everything is kind of fine, but I could definitely tell at the beginning some of the other parents, I think might have felt like I was judging them. And I didn't. It was just more of like, this is what I need for myself and my family. And my son still talks about missing friends from his old school. I don't think I've ever heard him talk about any of the racial dynamics to his old friends. The funniest thing he said was there tends to be this habit of like hoarding the class pencils at his new school. And I, I heard him say this to one of his old friends from his old school, like pencils are a big deal at my new school. <laughs> <laughs> but that's like the closest to comparing the schools that I've right. heard him do. <laughs> right, right, right. And I wonder too, if that's kind of like opportunities to continue to push the other school to kind of have more conversations about race and racism. It's awesome because your child has this amazing opportunity. And what are the other kids? How are their conversations at home going? I'm also still friends with most of the teachers there. They have all said to me they're interested in coming. One of the things in Montessori is teachers are really encouraged to like go and observe in different classrooms in different schools and that they're all really interested in coming and observing. At the school my son's attending now, the hard thing is like, of course, the breaks are all the same for them to get over there. But they're definitely interested in learning more about how Montessori is done like in a public school setting and all of that. Yeah, that's awesome. You guys are starting a lot of those conversations that it sounds like probably weren't really happening before. The other thing I wanted to ask you was, so that's kind of like personal challenges. As far as what about professional challenges that might have come up for you doing this work and on this journey? If there's anything that you, you would like to share with us. Since I've had a lot of different professional settings, I think it kind of depends on what that is. Well, I mean, when I was a community organizer, I mentioned that a lot of times I think I didn't really look at my own biases and how racism was showing up in my own life. And I definitely feel like that was true of other white colleagues and the organization. I directed a local organization, but we were part of a national network. Overwhelmingly, the staff at those local and national groups were white women. And I think that was a very common thing to feel like, well, anti-racism is the work that we're doing. And as white people, I think we especially tend to like to compare ourselves favorably to white people who are more overtly <laughs> biased. I'm not like them. Look at me. I think that's definitely been one professional challenge. And then now on the work that I'm doing, one of the things I thought of it as like, I'm starting this, I'm doing this writing for parents, but I've pulled in unexpectedly a lot of educators. <laughs> and also with the anti-racism work, I was especially thinking of white parents. I keep saying white parents, it's specifically parents of white children, because I know some white parents are raising kids of color or multiracial kids. But I've also got parents of kids of color asking me for resources. So 
the challenges is figuring out like, how can I best serve those folks while also realizing the limits of my knowledge? One of the things that I feel like I'm pretty good at is like curating resources and pointing people to things. So I may not be the one creating some of these things. And it probably isn't the best idea for me to, but I can point people to other folks and resources that can help them. I try to just always looking and reading for things that can help people because there's a lot of great resources out there, but it can be tricky to find them. They're not the mainstream kind of things that you're going to see when you go to like a typical teacher blog or parenting blog. So trying to collect those for people. That's awesome. A great way to kind of really expose people's information they may not always have. I want to know what advice do you wish you had early on your journey, your end racing journey that maybe you didn't have, if there is any? I think one thing that would have helped me and I try to remember now is everything has to be really intentional. Because as a white person living in this white dominated society, if I'm not intentional, the choices that seem natural, that seem like common sense, that seem like, oh, well, that's just what people do, will just carry you along on this path of supporting racist structures, whether you want to or not. And school choices is a good example of that. White parents tend to ask other white parents about whether they think a school is good or bad. And it's really just based on subjectivity, not actual evidence. And that's one of the ways that segregation continues in schools. I think back to when my son was little and if I had tried to make more intentional choices, even about things like finding playgroups, or he was for a while before we started school, he was in like a Mother's Day Out program. If we had been more intentional early on, you know, what might have changed. The other thing that maybe might sound a little bit contradictory, I don't know, but I tend to be somebody who just like went dive in and try to do like do it all in 30 days kind of thing. And then I'll get really discouraged because you really can't do that. Thinking about just focusing on like, what is my next step? I don't have to think 30 steps out. But what's the thing that's going to take me beyond my comfort zone, but not be terrifying to me? Because if it's terrifying, you're not going to do it or you're going to try it and then it's going to freak you out and you're going to just go back to exactly what you were doing before. So something that stretches me and then that new thing, you'll get used to it. It will feel comfortable. And so then what's the next step that's going to stretch you that doesn't quite feel comfortable, but isn't terrifying? Watching myself go through that, watching a lot of other people who grow doing it that way. Because I think perfectionism is a really strong part of white culture and needing to act like we've got it all together and we know it all right now. Nobody does. And where you are right now isn't going to be where you are in the future. And remembering that also helps me have patience with other white people who I might feel like are ignorant to, to remind myself where I was. Sometimes it's even just like six months ago, something I didn't know. So yeah. Yeah, I think that's so important because it is like this lifelong journey. And so taking those small steps and take whatever step you can take to really move yourself forward, it makes a difference, right? It's important that you're making those intentional steps. The last question that I wanted to ask you is, for people who are maybe asking, where do I start? For people who maybe are already on the journey, but kind of feeling stuck, and maybe you kind of answer that part of it. So maybe it's more, where do I start? What would you say to them? People are saying like, where do I start? What advice, what suggestions would you have for them? 
Yeah, well, I think when it comes to kids, and especially, again, thinking of what's typical for parents of white children, I don't know what you think of this may be true too of white parents who are raising kids of color is getting past our discomfort and even noticing and mentioning the skin tone and race. When you're reading books together, even if it's not a book that's about race, you can note it loud with kids, different shades of skin. You can name like the shades, but I think it's also helpful for kids to hear those racial labels that society uses so that there's not any shame attached around them. I've talked to those people about white people often being afraid to use the word black. I don't know any black people who think that that's a bad word to use. You can say African-American or black, but most black people I know are than African-American. Right. Especially also black people who are an African-American too, right? So even like those situations. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that's one thing. I think it's helpful too to notice when there's an absence. If you're reading a book and it's all white characters, you might stop at some point or watching a TV show and say, hmm, you know, I noticed that everyone in this show is white. I don't really think that that looks like what our community looks like. Or I wonder what kids who aren't white would think watching this show or if they would feel left out or something like that. So I think doing those initial steps of just getting used to mentioning it, because then a lot of times kids are noticing a lot more than we think they are. And if we send them those signals, this is an okay thing to talk about. Then they'll start telling us their observations or asking their questions, because since they are observing, they're also going to be picking up stereotypes and biases. So we want them to tell us what they're observing so we can correct them. So I think that's one of the best places to start. Right. No, that's great. Is there anything else you want to add too? But I just really thank you because I think it's so helpful for people to hear people's journeys and to hear the vulnerability and the different things that can come up with all of this work. And I really appreciate you being as open as you are about this. And I think people will find that helpful and relatable, right? That people I think can really connect with that. Anything else that you want to add before we finish? No, I mean, if folks, I do have a number of free resources and downloads on my blog. If people are interested in that, some of them are around race, some of them are around doing social justice with kids. And my name is hard to spell, but I'm sure in the show notes. But yeah, I would love for people to take advantage of that. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of the Racially Responsible Podcast. I hope you participate in our Facebook group to continue the conversation, share your thoughts, ask questions, and suggest future topics you would like to hear discussed on the show. I'd like to end each episode with encouraging each of us to think about one action step, small or big, that we could take today to help us move in the direction of creating a racially equitable future. If you feel comfortable, share your action step in our Facebook group to inspire and encourage others and receive support because we know action steps aren't always easy. Don't forget to check out the show notes and I hope you join us for our next episode. Until next time.